wonderful start. Uh, welcome everyone to what I think is going to be a very exciting event. When we planned it, of course, we didn't realize quite how topical it would be. This college can always see the future. <laughs> and so if you need something um, on Ukraine. Um, I'm the warden of the college, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here to what is most international college in Oxford. Uh, I think our students come this year from 73 different countries. And we think that we not only bring in people from around the world, but we study the world. We have a number of centers attached to the college, including a Russian and Eurasian center, which is sponsoring the event tonight. And I think we have here conversations about major issues in the world, and we have people who know a great deal about those parts of the world. And we're very, very lucky tonight to be having this event. I'd like to call on Paul Chasty, who is the director of the Russian and Eurasian center, to introduce our chair. On behalf of the Russian and Eurasian Studies Centre at St. Anthony, I'd like to welcome all of you to this year's Elliot Lecture. Uh, Jeffrey and Faye Elliott are generous sponsors of the activities of the centre, and through their support we're able to stage events like this one and many seminars throughout the year. We would like to thank the Chancellor and the distinguished members of the panel uh, for joining us this evening. We would also like to thank uh, Victor Pinchuk and the Pinchuk Foundation for making this event possible. Unfortunately, as you know, the current situation in Ukraine and the escalation of events has meant that Mr. Pinchuk was not able to attend on this occasion. This year's lecture deals with a very important and timely issue. When we first proposed this seminar back in September, the situation, of course, was very different. Then the main question concerned the Vilnius summit and the prospects for European integration. Today, the concern is Ukrainian territorial integrity, especially in light of the referendum that will be held in Crimea this Sunday. And tonight we might consider the ways in which the outcome of this referendum is likely to affect relations internationally and in the region. Uh, we very much look forward to hearing your views and to those of our speakers on these questions. And you should note that this event will be podcasted. Uh, so if you ask a question, I'm afraid you will need to sign a consent form. <laughs> and these forms uh, will be available from our student helpers, Emily and Stephanie, where is, uh, yeah, there's Stephanie and there's Emily at the back, uh, will be available after the seminar. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, and uh, I'd like to um, uh, underline, as the warden has done, um, the, uh, my congratulations to the centre on uh, showing such a timely sense in choosing this subject for uh, today's discussion. Um, and I'd just like to also underline the fact that um, all those of you who signed the consent form uh, are also, as you probably know, um, resigning from any um, commitments which 
St Anthony's or the government may have made under the health and safety regulations. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you lose out on, on that as well. I, I just wanted very briefly to uh, introduce the three panellists and then to um, say one thing and to offer a couple of brief anecdotes which sort of illustrate aspects of what we'll be um, talking about uh, this evening. Um, but first of all, to introduce um, the panellists. Uh, first of all, uh, in Victor Pinchuk's place is Professor Gwen Sasse from uh, Nuffield, and I think before that, or perhaps contemporaneously, um, uh, St. Anthony's, who is um, a great expert on the matters that we're going to be discussing, not least the Ukraine and Crimea, um, but has also written about uh, post-communist transitions, about the process of democratization, about migration, um, about um, the European Union's neighborhood policy, brackets, what that, close brackets, um, and other issues which we'll be uh, debating, I'm sure, during the course of uh, um, this afternoon and evening. Um, we're obviously delighted that President Kwasniewski is with us today. We first met um, at a discussion in Krakow about um, two years ago when I was there with uh, Timothy and, and others. He was elected, as you know, twice as president of Poland, and he helped to secure Poland's uh, very good uh, transition into the European Union and into NATO, helped to uh, anchor uh, democracy in uh, Poland and to put Poland on its course to um, spectacular um, uh, economic growth in comparison with the rest of the European Union. He's also uh, a very valuable contributor to this evening because um, he, of course, worked uh, in the Ukraine after the Orange Revolution and helped um, to uh, make what seemed to be um, the, a hopeful beginning after the Orange Revolution. It's going to be interesting to hear uh, what went wrong and why um, the reactions to what's recently happened in Ukraine have been so different, not least at the Russian end. It's particularly happy chance that my old friend and colleague Javier Solana is also here because he too was involved in uh, working uh, after the Orange Revolution to um, secure uh, uh, what seemed to be a stable future for Ukraine. Uh, Javier is a scientist, as you know, an academic um, minister, secretary general of NATO, high representative for Europe's foreign uh, and security policy, um, and uh, a, a very distinguished diplomat with a huge reputation on both sides of the Atlantic, and indeed both sides of the Pacific. And so it's a great pleasure that he's back in, in Oxford uh, today. Just three short points I wanted to make. Um, I guess I've read most of Conrad over the years. Conrad born uh, just southwest of Kiev. The first um, bit of Conrad manuscript that exists is a handwritten note from Joseph Conrad, aged seven or eight, to his grandmother to thank her for sending him some cakes. 
And after the expressions of gratitude, it's signed Joseph Conrad, grandson, Catholic, Polish gentleman. <laughs> and it's a reminder of the way in that borderland, the territory has moved from one sovereignty to another um, over, the, over the years. Um, two anecdotes. Um, first of all, Javier and I were at a EU-Ukraine summit, and I guess about 2002, with President Kushma. Uh, and the summit took place in Yalta, um, at the villa which had been the, um, which had uh, provided the meeting rooms for the great summit towards the end of the war between the um, allied leaders when they began to talk about the carving up of post-war Europe. And it was a lovely evening and we had a great feast after the talks which had got absolutely nowhere. We had a great feast, not least because it was President Kushmar's birthday. And I remember we had industrial-sized tubs of caviar, and each place um, its own carafe of wonderful iced vodka. And halfway through this birthday feast, Kushmar, who had his personal phone on the table next to him, and picks it up as it rings, and says, hello, Vladimir. <laughs> and it is Putin phoning up to wish him a happy birthday. And I think both of them were making a point. <laughs> the FSB get <laughs> I think President Putin was making a point. And I suspect that President Kushmar was making a point as well, that he had other fish which he could fry. And the other um, anecdote which has had, in a sense, sad consequences, is my very first meeting as a European uh, Commissioner for External Relations was with the um, then uh, Ukrainian Foreign Minister, um, Zelenko and, was it Terechuk, um, were sort of turn and turn about um, uh, over it. I think it was Terechuk. And uh, I saw him with couple of my officials, and uh, he asked me if I could describe European neighborhood policy. So I told him that at the heart of it, as far as Ukraine was concerned, was that the European Union recognized Ukraine's European vocation. And he said, could you say exactly what that European vocation is? And under pressure, I fessed up that the one thing it didn't include was actually being a member of the European Union. So he said, I see, he said, you're telling me that you accept that Turkey is your European country, but not Ukraine. Um, at the end of the meeting, after he'd gone, one of my German officials said, it's quite embarrassing for people like me, he said. Both my parents were born in what is now the Ukraine. Um, and my father worked for the railways in what is now Ukraine for many years. 
So I hope that during the evening, when we'll doubtless talk about what the European Union should do in response to what's happened in Ukraine, when we talk about um, what uh, Russia is likely to do, we can just consider, among other things, um, how Europe is treating its neighbourhood. Um, enlargement, after all, um, helped to secure the stability of Europe. Um, around our borders, um, the failures of European neighbourhood policy have meant that we don't have that stability. And I think it's a real challenge for the future of European policy. Nobody can blame Europe for what's happening in North Korea. But I think we should have been rather better uh, around our own borders. Um, I think the first speaker is going to be you, President Kreshnevsky, and then uh, uh, Javier Solana, and then Professor Sasse. Thank you very much for this opportunity to speak about such hot topics like Ukraine, what is going there, and the future of this country. Uh, but uh, for me, it's not easy because among so good specialists, historian, politician, politologists, etc., it's not um, easy to um, say something what is not well known for you. But please allow me uh, to say some of my personal remarks as a politician. And as a man who was uh, involved uh, in Ukrainian uh, issues from the very beginning, the independence of Ukraine in 91. Then, of course, as a president, I collaborated very closely with uh, President Kuchma. Uh, then, of course, uh, together with Javier Solana and the President of Ukraine, Valma Sadankos, we were special envoys of uh, European Union to find a solution in so-called Orange Revolution. And it was our idea to, to, to manage this, this um, conflict and um, this um, crisis to organize this third round, what was absolutely not um, according to the Constitution, but was a good solution for this difficult situation. And last uh, <coughs> uh, month, many months before Vilnius summit, uh, I was a special envoy together with former President of European Parliament, Pat Cox, a special envoy of European Parliament uh, to Ukraine, and we tried to um, eliminate the last obstacles before um, the signing of uh, association agreement with free trade agreement. And our task was, first of all, to, to, to watch uh, all these uh, judiciary reforms, uh, of course, the cases of uh, political prisoners, especially Madam Timoshenko. And uh, in this capacity, I visited together with Pat uh, Ukraine 27 times. We spent 18, 18 um, uh, um, months. Uh, we spent with President Yanukovych, for example, more as uh, uh, unforgettable 50 hours um, of, many, uh, of many talks. Uh, and of course, our feeling uh, when Ukraine decided, or Yanukovych decided to make this U-turn, was uh, deepest frustration. But of course, frankly speaking, we didn't um, um, predict that this situation can develop in such way and so with such dynamic. Because something what is unbelievable that is a dynamic of the process which you can observe since November last year. And I would like to organize my remarks with three elements. Because we have a conflict uh, with some kind of triangle. We have Ukraine, we have Russia, we have the West, not only European Union, but uh, EU and, and the United States and Canada. Canada is quite important partner for all these things because in Canada we have 
quite uh, big and, and influential Ukrainian diaspora. Well, some words about Ukraine. Ukraine is a, is a special place in the world, a special country with a special state, because this is a state with a very, very short uh, history of own statehood, of own independence. We can speak about independent Ukraine for some almost months after World War I, and now we can speak about 22 years of independence after 91. And this independence um, was, uh, to some extent, um, a surprise for everybody, because the uh, decision about independence was um, uh, <coughs> decided um, by referendum in December 91. If, if uh, I'm correct, and I remember my talk with Kravchuk, who was last time the leader of Ukraine, and Gorbachev, who was a, a leader of, of Soviet Union. And for both of them, the result of this referendum was absolutely surprised. Uh, Gorbachev was sure that in this question where Ukraine wants to stay in this reformed Soviet Union, Commonwealth of Independent States, because it was a new concept of, of Gorbachev, or uh, they want to be independent, his expectation was 55 to 45 in favor of this new, new Soviet Union, the CIS. For Kravchuk, Kravchuk's expectation was different. His prediction was 55 for independence, 45 for this CIS. The result was a surprise for everybody. Because turnout was something around uh, almost 90%, and the result was 90.7% for independence, and the uh, rest for uh, this uh, CIS. Of course, today when we discuss about this referendum, it's necessary to <coughs> underline that this independence for many voters uh, had different uh, substance. For many of them was independence, for many of them was better life, for many of them was um, escape from, from Soviet Union sphere, etc., etc. But it's necessary to say that 91, the independence of Ukraine was founded quite seriously under huge in the support of the 90% of, 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 of voters, a huge part of, uh, of the society. And I think the first mistake in Russian perception of Ukraine started in this moment, because uh, they still think, uh, about Russia I will say some words more, but they still think that, that uh, uh, at least 50% of Ukrainians, they are Russians and, and they are pro-Russians people. I think that is, that is the wrong, <coughs> wrong enemy. First, independence of Ukraine is quite fresh. 23 years is not a very long time. And after these 23 years, we can say about some strength of this country and a lot of much more weaknesses of this country. What is the strength of this country, in my opinion? Two elements. First is the identity, the national identity of Ukraine developed and strength in these 23 years very much. Today, really, we can speak about Ukrainian nation and about much more about Ukrainian identity as 23 years ago. And this is very important next element of thinking about the future of this country. They are, the identity, briefly speaking, the identity of Ukrainians is uh, absolutely much more stronger as, for example, Belarusian. Uh, the next point, which is an uh, element of the process in the last 23 years, is increasing role and uh, developing civil society. In my opinion, civil society in Ukraine is the strongest one among all post-Soviet countries in, 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 in Europe. We had the first signal of the strength of the civil society it was the Orange Revolution 2004-2005. After this Orange Revolution, the process of, of, um, 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 
of establishment of civil society uh, accelerated very much. And today, uh, it's necessary to say that we have uh, not only in, in, in Kiev, not only in, in western part of, 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 of Ukraine, but also in eastern part. And I visited many places of the east, like Donetsk, Dnipropetrovsk, or, or Kharkiv, uh, and this civil society may be not so strong as in Kiev, but is existing and is important factor of everything what is what is uh, happening or will happen in Ukraine. And then, of course, the list of some positive elements is almost finished, unfortunately. And then it's necessary to say about the weaknesses of the country, and among these weaknesses of the country is a lot. The first is uh, this country is really historically, economically very divided. And normally we speak about this division between East and West, Russian-speaking part and Ukrainian-speaking part, more nationalistic and more pro-Russian, etc. And this line is, of course, quite important, but unfortunately, this is not only one line of division in Ukraine. Because now we see the next line of division, Crimea and, and the continent. Uh, then we have a, a huge division between metropolis and province, and peripheries of the country. We have um, a, a huge difference between old generation, much more homo sovieticus generation, and young generation, much more westernized generation, which is better educated with a lot of experience from many places of the world, especially Poland, but not only. They are traveling, they are speaking many languages, etc. And we have, of course, um, the problem with um, uh, rich people and poor people. Because everything that happened in the last 22 years, this is something what is uh, really the source of next very dramatic tensions in this country. Really one example. Poland and, and, and Ukraine started 22, 22 years, uh, more or less from the, the same level. The GDP per capita was almost similar. Today, Polish GDP per capita is 3.5 times bigger as Ukrainian GDP per capita. But the richest folk, the richest businessman in Poland, has no chances to be among first ten in Ukraine. It means the richest Ukrainians are extremely rich, and the poor Ukrainians are unfortunately extremely poor. And in my opinion, this is the next element of the tensions which can be very dramatic uh, next, uh, next uh, month. The next problem of the country and the next weakness of this country is the weakness of the institutions of the state. Uh, that is, of course, a complicated issue, but uh, I tell you only about two elements. The political elites in Ukraine, they are fighting against each other from the very beginning. In fact, only in very short period after the independence, we had some kind of bipartisan approach or such uh, common approach to main strategic um, elements of Ukrainian policy. And that is the next difference between, for example, Poland, my country, and, and, and Ukraine. In Poland, for the main strategic uh, goals like NATO or European Union, we have very wide bipartisan or many partisan um, support. Yesterday, we celebrated 15, um, uh, 15 years anniversary of our NATO membership. And uh, especially in these new circumstances, new situation, we realize how important it is for us to be in this, in this organization, but it was possible because from the very beginning, main goals of our politics, strategic goals of politics, were uh, accepted and supported by a very wide spectrum of political forces. 
In Ukraine, unfortunately, not. We have a very uh, divided um, uh, spectrum of, of, of political parties, of politicians, and frankly speaking, uh, especially since 2002, we have never-ending war between these two main groups of uh, politicians, pro-West-oriented and pro-East-oriented. And despite Yushchenko, Yanukovych, and uh, Yanukovych, Timoshenko last year, that is such a very spectacular example of this never-ending fight on the top of, of Ukrainian politics. And the next um, evidence of uh, this weakness of the state is corruption. Corruption really in Ukraine is, uh, is, is, is dramatic. And even more important is that corruption in Ukraine, especially during Yanukovych time, was systematic, was, a, was an element of the system, organized and conducted and led by the president of the country. And that is something what, is, what was true even when he was a president, and now we have a lot of, of, of uh, information, we have a lot of evidence that he was really the leader of, of this uh, system of the corruption, state corruption, which is um, uh, on all levels of, of the society and on the all levels of the, of the, the, the public institutions in, in, in Ukraine. And of course, next weakness of, of Ukraine is uh, economy, which is very much in old style, is not enough reformed in the last 20 years, is not modernized, is very much independent of the uh, Russian market, and of course, um, uh, for the future of Ukraine, the modernization of this uh, whole structure, entire structure of, of, of economy is, uh, is a must. It is something what they have to do in very difficult social and political conditions which we have now and which, uh, in my opinion, we will have the next, next uh, uh, years. So Ukraine is in very difficult, internally, in very difficult situation. And of course, uh, this decision uh, to go to the east or to the west is one of the strategic decisions of the country, but is uh, very much combined with many of other elements which uh, create such complicated and quite dark picture of, of the situation in Ukraine now. Then, next element of this triangle, Russia. About Russia, I will say some simple words because in my I, I was asked many times if I understand um, the politics of Putin, what he's doing. But I'm so sorry that, that my answer will be so simple and maybe um, uh, almost uh, uh, too simple. Uh, Putin has uh, one goal, and this goal is to create Euro-Asian Union, to create new superpower. And for this superpower, he needs Ukraine. He needs entire Ukraine. He needs, of course, Crimea as a part of Ukraine. He needs Eastern Ukraine as a part of Ukraine. But his main goal is to have Ukraine, entire Ukraine, as a part of this his main idea, main project, Euro-Asian Union. Why he's fighting so much for Euro-Asian Union? Because that is a main element in his mind to, to be the, one of the most um, influential historical leaders of this country after Peter the Great, Katrina the Great, Joseph Stalin. And he would be number four. That is not a joke. That is something what sounds like a joke, but that is not a joke. That is, that is his dream. That is his politics. And that is his determination. And that is uh, something what we have to understand and not to be naive and not to live with some illusions because uh, there's no illusions. And of course, 
He was very close to have entire Ukraine in this concept for Euro, Euro, Euro Union because Yanukovych decided not to sign association agreement. And the plan prepared by Putin and Yanukovych was followed. Not to sign association agreement, to support Ukrainian economy by 15 billion US dollars, to support Yanukovych in the election 2015, and to have Yanukovych in the hands of Russia next year, 2015 and next year. And then next step would be exactly now, March, April 2014, to change the status of Ukraine in custom union from the status of observers into status of, of a full member of the custom union. And then Ukraine as a member of custom union would be the, the one of the founders of Euro-Asian Union 2015 or 2016 together with, with um, uh, Russia, Belarus and, and, and Kazakhstan. And that was a plan. It was very close to, to, to fulfill this plan. The problem, what is the problem of all leaders of post-Soviet region is that they, they don't understand what means civil society and they don't understand what means the real will of the people and how the people spontaneously can go to demonstrate something. That is absolutely out of the imagination of these leaders because for them, if someone who is going to protest or to demonstrate something should be paid by CIA or other intelligence from the world, it cannot be spontaneous movement which is a reaction under some disappointment, humiliation, frustration, etc., etc. Demonstration from Aydan was a result of this U-turn of Yanukovych, which was absolutely not explained to the people, because communication between Yanukovych and the people and the society was something around zero. And, of course, the frustration, because of lack of this association agreement, started to change suddenly, um, into frustration of uh, quality of leadership, of uh, corruption, of um, uh, frustration, bad social situation, bad economy, etc., etc. This is natural process of uh, such um, uh, demonstration protests, which we know very well from Poland Solidarity in 1991. It's exactly the same procedure, the same process, and the same change of, of arguments and, and, and expectations, etc., etc. And of course, this project collapsed, this, this idea, because Yanukovych, you know all these stories, finally escaped. And today we have a new situation for Russia, which Russia, in my opinion, wants to manage in the following way. First, Crimea is the first element of destabilization of, of Ukraine. And of course, Crimea is today practically in Russian hands. And maybe my colleagues, uh, they have some idea what we can do with Crimea, but I'm quite pessimistic. I don't know what we can do now having uh, Russian troops, having the base in Sevastopol, and, and the referendum which ha will have a result 90% in favor of, 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 um, uh, of, of, of Russia and, 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 and very small group uh, against. But the next step of, of, of um, uh, Putin is the stabilization of Eastern Ukraine, especially before election 25th of May. Because for him it's very important to say that he cannot recognize new president of Ukraine because this election was not fair, not um, free, that we had election only 60-70% of uh, polling station, and this destabilization will be the permanent element of Ukraine, of Russian policy towards uh, Ukraine. The next step after 25th of May will be to continue the stabilization. Uh, and this is very easy because with such a list of problems, the new government will have not so much time 
solve these problems, not enough money to do it, and we have the government of Yatsenyuk, a new president, we have a, a, enormous pressure from the side of Maidan, from the side of the people, to show some positive effects of everything that happened in this revolution 2013-2014. And in my opinion, the idea of Putin today is to wait, we don't know when it will happen, the new government will collapse, and this Maidan number two, because Maidan number one was Orange Revolution, now it's Maidan number two. This Maidan number two will be replaced by Maidan number three, which will be very much against Maidan number two, and will open some possibilities to create more pro-Russian government and to create some new possibilities to say also to Europeans, look, this country is falling, this country is not predictable, you have no chances, to be a serious partner to solve the problems of Ukraine, and we are on our place. We are ready to do it. That is my analysis, and knowing quite well this region, knowing quite well my partners from, from our partners from Russia, I almost sure that this scenario will go on this way, and we cannot be late. And last point, very shortly, because much better specialist of European Union is my good friend Javier. European Union and the West. We are, of course, in an extremely difficult situation because we are very democratic structure. We cannot use the methods which are against our values, our tradition, uh, and frankly speaking, we have not uh, enough instruments, because even, even these democratic instruments. Because to organize huge support, financial support for, for, for Ukraine, it needs time, it needs a lot of um, discussions, uh, etc. But my suggestion, and uh, I discussed with almost everybody in Europe who I, I could uh, say so, first of all, is to understand seriously of the situation. It's necessary to understand that the Ukrainian crisis is not for days, not for weeks, not for months. This is a question for, for years. The next, if we want to react correctly, it's necessary to understand what Russia wants to do. And secondly, it's necessary to prepare answer which will be very common, very prepared from, from uh, all the West, including USA and, 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 and uh, Canada. Because solidarity in this case maybe is more valuable as even some elements of this, of this problem. We have, because if, if Russia, because this is the next element of Russian very, from uh, their side, quite clever politics, they want to play various places with different elements of, of structure of the West. I was uh, saying many times that for Russia doesn't exist one European policy. They have 28 plus one European policies. This 28 is a bilateral uh, contacts with European countries, with members of the EU, with some of them privileged, with some of them not so good, with some of them quite bad. And this plus one is the less important policy that is towards Brussels, towards uh, European institutions and so on. And of course, we should understand that that is Russian contact, contact, concept and approach, and we should propose something different. More common policies, common approach, a lot of solidarity, and actions, and understanding the situation is serious and can be dramatic. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, President. Um, Javier, would you like to go next? Okay. Uh, I'm fine. Uh, 
Thank, thank you very much, uh, Chris, uh, for coming uh, to be with us today. Thank you very much for your friendship. And thank you very much for what I've learned for you, working with you and working together. Margaret, uh, thank you very much for being here. You know how much I admire you and I read your books. And uh, how much I wanted to write uh, one of your books uh, when I called you on the phone. <laughs> and you did it, you did much better. Uh, it's very difficult to, to say something meaningful after Alexander Barniesi has spoken. But I will try to say something and uh, try to make it meaningful. I'm going to begin with uh, my little history with Ukraine. Because I think if we understand that properly, we will understand a little bit better what is the relation between Ukraine and Russia and Russia and the European Union and the Ukraine and the European Union. The first time I was in Ukraine, uh, the president was uh, Kuchman, and it was two years after the independence. It was the first time that Kuchman was elected, three years after the And uh, I have uh, constructed a very good personal relationship with them. And uh, I was very, very attracted to, to Ukraine, and I belonged. But um, I had to remind you two or three dates in my life with Ukraine, which I think are important to understand. The first thing is that uh, when they, they signed the 1994 agreement for the nuclearization of Ukraine, remember that it was signed by your country, by Russia, and by the United States. And there it was uh, absolutely recognized in the integrity of Ukraine as an independent country, including Crimea. For a few years after that, not very many, I happened to be in Sebastopol. Sebastopol was a closed city. Nobody could enter into Sebastopol but the military. And at that time, I was Secretary General of NATO. And I could enter in Sebastopol. In Sebastopol, the impression that I got was, for me, unforgettable. Because there you have two navies, two navies, not one, two navies, that had been separated a few years before, that uh, they were very rotten, really not a spectacular navy to go on and to, into con uh, controlling the world. It really basically dismantled, basically, submarines, everything, pretty bad, pretty much it, but two, which is really something that uh, you have to keep in mind. In the same place, there were two navies, one in Ukraine and the other with Russia. And the people that were in the Russian and the Ukraine, they were very good friends because they belonged to the same. So let me go back to the other day. Well, the other day, when the, the new president of the Republic, after the committee was uh, abandoned, appointed the new chief of military staff, he was a Navy man, and he sent him to uh, Sebastopol. And uh, when he found himself in Sebastopol, the first thing he did was say, Goodbye to Kiev. And I will be part of the people of Sebastopol. All his friends, all his ships were there. So these type of things are necessary to understand a little bit more what is the relationship still of a generation, particular generation of military people, uh, etc., which have been so close together, which is difficult to see one in a separating in a separate time. Now, the second thing that I want to tell you is September 11th, three o'clock in the afternoon. I was in Kiev, or I was in Ukraine, not in Kiev, I was in the 
with the mountains in the old house of Resnef, having lunch with uh, Persian Kutu. And uh, the, the, when the, the telephone rang, saying that September 11th, the big catastrophe was taking place, uh, he didn't know anything, he, he came to me. And uh, from there on, you can imagine that we had a fantastic uh, experience of having lived together. So I constructed a very good relationship with him. Now, I want to tell you something else which is very important to understand. When they were Secretary General of NATO, if we had to expand NATO to the East, remember that uh, in 1989, when the reunification of Germany, the most difficult part, or one of the most difficult parts, was to get a unified Germany in NATO. Because the border of NATO was moving to the East, and then we had to enlarge NATO to some members of the Soviet, uh, Soviet the, the, the Balsam Pact, and we were to move again the border to the East. And I thought at that time, and everybody understood, the Americans understood, and the Europeans understood, that that could not be done without having a conversation, I'm going to say a negotiation, a conversation with the Russians. And that was an easy thing to do, to really convince the Russians that we are going to, we were going to continue moving the border towards the East. Now, we started a negotiation with Primakov at the time foreign minister, then prime minister, a very interesting personality, very solid man. And uh, I will tell you what happened that day. It was 27th of January, 1997. And uh, I was in the Dacha in Moscow with Primakov. And um, the delegation of his delegation, my delegation, and um, after two or three vodkas in which we have to do uh, remember the, his father, his wife, and my father, his wife, etc. I I presented my case. My case said, well, we are going to do this, and we want to do it in cooperation with you. And uh, I explained what it was the deal, etc. And he uh, took another vodka, another vodka and said, Javier, let's go for a walk. What's not? And uh, we were for a walk alone, without any policeman or anything, and the Dutch. I would say for an hour and a half, almost, almost two hours. And I got, uh, I will pass to you exactly the message that he got. Javier, uh, I'm going to accept this. But I want to tell you what for me will be unacceptable. For me, it will be unacceptable that any ex Soviet Republic, Russian Federation, will be changing sides. Well, I'm sorry, uh, Eugenie, but it's something I cannot guarantee. That will depend of how well we are able to relate between NATO and the European Union and Russian Federation. We, we, we can uh, do that uh, uh, trade together without complication. We will do it. If not, we'll see. Now, Ukraine was at the heart of his heart. At heart. And uh, at the heart, because his wife, on top of that, was born in Kiev. So my, my, my love is in Kiev, and my heart in Manchester. And he was obsessed with uh, this uh, with Ukraine. Now, we had then the, uh, the moment, uh, it was very, very important, because I did something very important for Ukraine. It was at the same moment, the same summit of NATO, in which the large one took place. 
in which we sign an agreement with, uh, with Russia, we have an agreement with Ukraine also. We identify Ukraine as an important player, and we wanted to leave it that, uh, to give it that, uh, that level of recognition. It's a serious country, a big country, 40 million people, etc. So from the very beginning, we have been dealing with, uh, with Kiev and with Ukraine with great respect. And really, this was not, uh, it didn't make very happy the, the Russians, but we didn't, we wanted to do that, 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 that. Now, after that, uh, uh, Alexander has talked about, uh, about uh, the Orange Revolution. The German Revolution, I would like to underline two things. One, that was really uh, the 9th of December, snowing, cold, etc. People were there, really, very, very, very committed, very committed. And it was two leaders. Viktor Yushchenko and Julia Timoshenko. Okay? Viktor Yushchenko had been poisoned not long ago, not long before, months before, or year before. He was really uh, somebody with tremendous respect because of his, uh, of his life. And then Julia Timoshenko, a fantastic leader that was really, the massive really was with Julia But we solved that problem, and let me underline one thing. We solved that problem in a round table. In a round table in the European Union, by this gentleman and myself. The Russians were presented by Chernobyl, and the chairman of the Duma, and Kuchma, and Kuchma who has, was the one who had won the elections, quotation mark, and we wanted to change, because the elections were not fair, and the Victor Yushchenko. So the two, uh, the two presidents, the one who was going to be changed for the other because the election was unfair, the Russians, the Europeans. Now, think about that, because this is something that we should have done this time, a round table of that nature. We have not been able to. We talked, you and me, Alexander and myself, we spent one day in, in Milan not long ago, the last weeks, talking about how we could create the conditions to recuperate that the spirit that resolved the crisis in 2002. Now, from 2000, sorry, 2004, from 2004 to 2014 are 10 years. In those 10 years, in my opinion, humble opinion, Ukraine has wasted dramatically its time. Politically and economically. Political, because they were able to construct a political party system. They don't have it. And still don't have it. And economically, because with the fight, immediate fight that started between Viktor Yushchenko and Yuri Timoshenko, made it possible to move the country forward. So, this 10 years for me has been the most frustrating years in relation with Ukraine, because I talk to them, you talk to them, yes, about every other day to see after the effort we had made in the, in the old revolution, how it was being spoiled. And that is the, the, the sentiment that they have, and I want to convey to you, because this is true. So we have to analyze things in the context which are, which are taking place. Now, the situation today, as, uh, as Alexander has said, is very, very difficult. But I think two mistakes were made. The first mistake it was not to go before uh, the visit of the, of the three ministers 
not regularly before. A week. If that could have taken a week before, the situation still was ready to make uh, the agreement to terminate operation. As you see, the, the Russians were there. It was a good effort we made to have a Russian representative. They look it. was the president of the, of the Commission of the Foreign, of the foreign Relations. And the time now is the Ombudsman of Russia. He's uh, somebody constructive, and he was constructive in the conversation. But uh, as you know, it was impossible to implement. The agreement was very, very good. Yeah. The agreement they put in the life, political life of Lukashenko. And at the end of the year 2000, which we are now. And um, Putin, as, uh, as Alexander had said, uh, cool. That is, but we cannot uh, say that for sure. But it seems to me that uh, Yanukovych left because Putin talked to him. It's, it's an operation because if he, he had agreed on that and stayed, the situation for Putin would have been much worse. Because the agreement was, in a way, very favorable to the Biden people. Change the constitution, government of unity, and elections before the end of the year. So, um, that's one mistake. And uh, the second mistake, it was about the same time, not having taken the agreement of 1994, which is the agreement whereby Ukraine would be nuclearized. Remember, Ukraine was a, a country which was a big, big chunk of the, of the missiles of Russia. And the agreement would be taken to Russia with the signature of the United States, of Russia and your country, as I said before. These signatories had the obligation, according to article, I don't remember the article, I think one article of the, of the agreement, of guaranteeing the integrity of Ukraine. The security of Ukraine is written down there inside. And uh, for more than we want to spend, uh, how much, how many hours we spend on that? One night in, 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 in Davos, remember? Another in, in, in Milan, I don't know. Three or four men we spent together to try to mobilize that, uh, that agreement, to, to, to put back that agreement and find a solution trilateral between uh, Russia, United States, and the European Union. And think that uh, if we could have done that, we could have presented also as an economic help. The, the situation in, in Ukraine is in default. The European Union does have money to get them out. The Americans don't have the money at this point, or don't want to use it for that purpose. Russia has the money. And the IMF has the money. But the conditions that the IMF were putting were absolutely impossible to accept by a country that didn't have a government. <coughs> very difficult to do that, to promise that, and to be assessed. So the IMF may be coming back now, but at that time, that means three, three weeks ago, it was important. So in agreement of that nature, we will we, we allow to have the Ukraine getting out of the crisis and have a political control for a period of time when the, 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 the loan was given by the United States, Russia, and the European Union controlling that uh, 
So that was a thing that uh, we were not intelligent enough, or rapid enough, or didn't have influence. Both of us, we don't have any power. But it was not done, and I think I still, I, I lament that it was not part of Instead of uh, what was done, statements, uh, uh, visit to the Maidan uh, minister, which I don't think that the, the role of the minister is to go to Maidan to give chocolate to the demonstration. I don't think it's the role of the prime minister in a situation like this. Okay, now, I, I, I tell you the consequences of this. I think we are having a very complicated situation for President Putin. As Alexander has said, when President Putin wants a, a custom union, a custom union with Ukraine, because otherwise he will be a leader of an Asian country. If he wants to have a European influence, he needs Ukraine. 40 million people, uh, sophisticated, etc., and principal, more sophisticated than that. Now, he will get with Kazakhstan. And if you follow the news of the last days, the one which is really friendly is Kazakhstan. Because really Kazakhstan sees himself now in a very complicated situation. Either he has to, 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 to suffer uh, something similar or something more dramatic, or he is the only one who, if, if, as it looks now, uh, Ukraine is not in the custom union, he will, have, he will be the leader of the custom union, and he doesn't want to be the leader of the country. So there are problems with that. Now, we have problems in the United States, also, for sure. I think that uh, the crisis in Ukraine, plus the crisis in Syria, plus the negotiations from Iraq, plus uh, Afghanistan, plus uh, you name it, is too much. And maybe the pressure from the right, from the Tea parties, are going to put on, put on, uh, on Obama, Maybe that he has a, a reaction, which I still don't know what it would be. But uh, I think the situation, the, the global situation now, has changed very much, much more than we think, for the, the situation in, in Ukraine. Now, for the Europeans, do we want to get uh, Ukraine as a problem of the big powers? Or would we prefer to solve this problem as a problem between the European Union and one of the most important neighbors. If we enter into the, into the big conflict, I think that it will be very difficult because this is a zero-sum game for Putin. Zero-sum game for Putin. Now, if we can transport this and try to bring it to a, a, a situation of a regional, or European Union vis-a-vis uh, Russia, not in terms of American, not in terms of the big powers, but the right regional, I think that there still is a possibility to resolve this in a much better manner. And this is not, it's not like, but it's not impossible. It's not, we have to try to do, to do that often. Now, um, so uh, I, I finish here because uh, Alexander has put on the, the details of the situation. I think that uh, today, my, my, my impression today, the meeting which is taking place right now between the, uh, Curry and Lavrov, there is a chance that something may come out, out of this conversation and the formation of something possible, not, uh, not sure. Formation of a sort of contact group 
a contact group uh, which may allow, with that format, a first contact between Putin and the government of Kiev, which they have not talked to each other, but they have in contact at all. Now, to see that could be the, 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 the envelope for some contact between, if not Putin, somebody with somebody from Kiev and, uh, and, and Russia. Uh, I don't know, but uh, we are really in a very critical situation for this particular problem, also for Syria, because uh, it will not be easier to solve Syria without solving this issue. And, uh, and you put on the, the problem that we have on the, on the, on the scenario, on the national scenario, is a big complication or the element of the solution. And maybe the element of the solution is that you may move in a, in a better direction uh, if a good uh, agreement can be found. Now, I insist on what something that um, we don't insist enough. What uh, Putin wants is a custom union, not a free trade agreement. Custom union. You know very well the difference between a free trade agreement and a custom union. A free trade agreement, which is what we offer. We offer a free trade agreement plus. But basically, the association agreement is a free trade agreement, basically. And the other side is offering a custom union. That for Putin is much better, but for trade is very, very bad. Because if you are in a custom union, you have the, the, the tariff you have to pay when you sell to a third country is fixed by the union. That means it will be fixed by the bigger part of the union, which is Russia. So Ukraine in a custom union is incompatible when, with a free trade agreement with the European Union. So the question is, is, is more tricky than what we present. Because it's, I mean, the idea, you don't have to choose. Okay, you don't have to choose. But if the offer is a custom union, you are choosing in a way that you will not have economic relations with the third parties because you will not have the freedom to fix your tariffs. And that is a, big, a, a delicate point, and nobody looks into that, but it's not a free trade agreement versus a free trade agreement. So that complicates the issue very much also for the European Union, because we, for us, we want to have good relations with Ukraine. We would like to have at least a free trade agreement. And that probably it will be very difficult to achieve if they are part of the customer. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Professor. Thank you, and thanks for inviting me to be on this panel, a late edition, I realize, but I'm very privileged to, to be here today. Um, we've heard a lot about um, the real insights into crisis situations, and clearly we two gentlemen were present when, when a lot of important negotiations took place. As an academic, I haven't been um, in those situations, so I look on onto events, both uh, past events and what's happening today from the sidelines, from outside, but perhaps one can provide a little bit of context or make us maybe also pause and think what some lessons might be already um, today. Um, maybe the middle of a crisis is not a, not a good moment to pause. But I think a few um, elements are already clear. They, I want to talk a little bit about 
EU-Ukraine relations and said a few things about Ukraine's transition, really following up on what we've heard already, and end with a few comments on Crimea, and I'm sure then you're eager to, to launch into the discussion. I think one of the key things that we, that we see today is um, how uh, risky ambivalent policies can be. And I'm not suggesting to you today that um, the EU is to blame for what we currently see in Ukraine and Crimea, but I think while constructive ambiguity might be needed um, in um, acute crisis situations, um, vagueness um, about where certain process is going, um, and over many years the, the EU-Ukrainian uh, um, relationship has been like that, also um, entails risks and uh, political events can, can capitalize on that. So I think um, without it obviously being part of the design, um, the vagueness that um, has surrounded both the EU's uh, institutional setup, its um, commitment to Ukraine, there are good reasons for all of those things, why, why that vagueness is there. Um, and also on the other hand, um, uh, a lack of uh, a very unified political will in Ukraine to, to pursue uh, closer relations with the EU on the, the EU's terms in terms of how it can structure relationships with um, a neighboring country like, like Ukraine. Um, so what, I'm, what I want to put out there is that um, I think Western institutions, Western states, but also the EU is part of what we're seeing now. So it raises, the process raises expectations which maybe cannot um, actively be managed. It raises a whole range of um, different motivations and aspirations. As um, Stefanowski rightly said, the protests in the Maidan was about something like European aspirations. It doesn't necessarily mean EU membership for every, every Ukrainian. That meant a whole a range of other expectations. And while it's easy to see why that would be the case, again, um, I think how, how the EU has also structured the relationship and how Ukraine has tried to shape it and be proactive or not so proactive on um, in a particular moment is, is part of that story. So I think that um, should make us pause and, and also reflect on um, inadvertent consequences of um, uh, Western policies. On Ukraine briefly, um, and again, I pick up on something that Mr. Kwasniewski already said. Given Ukraine's history, given the regional diversity of this country, given the fact that this is a country that um, is for the first time in its current borders putting together the Ukrainian state since 91, uh, Ukraine has come quite a long way. And I think at the moment, uh, we are um, mainly perceiving, obviously, a crisis and, and weaknesses. Um, but we shouldn't see, for example, what we see in other regions in the south and east as an imminent danger for the, for the whole country to, to dissolve, for, for Russia actively seeking to incorporate other parts of Ukraine. So I think Ukrainian statehood um, really has evolved and is, has become stronger than we might think at, at the moment. Uh, that doesn't mean that um, uh, situations can't, can't be destabilized, and it will take a while to, even for, for the rest of Ukraine now, for, for the south and east, to, to find a new political balance. But ultimately, I think we should not lose sight of how, how far Ukraine has come. And part of that um, success story, I would think, um, uh, is also that a previous conflict in Crimea was avoided. Um, and in the 1990s, we might have almost forgotten about this now, but uh, there, were, there was a real potential for conflict in Crimea along different, along different dimensions. An intra-regional conflict, a centre-periphery conflict with Kiev, Russian-Ukrainian relations unclear at the time, um, and, and, and so on. 
And that was diffused by a combination of a very drawn-out um, uh, constitution-making process, both at the national and regional level in Ukraine, that enshrined uh, an admittedly politically entirely weak autonomy status for Crimea. But that process of engaging all the key actors at the time is perhaps something that we should um, look at again. And that whole process, I would argue, and I have argued in my research, uh, took conflict potential out of um, the situation. Uh, so that might be much more important than the final institutional fix or the final institutional um, outcome. A few thoughts then on Crimea, what we see at the moment, and adding perhaps to the figures that Mr. Kroshevsky gave for support for Ukrainian independence, just to also remind ourselves that in 1954, 54% of Crimeans also voted in favor of, of Ukrainian independence, and that was um, without without. Um, uh, the Crimean Tatars being uh, a, a political force in Crimea yet, who would have supported it, but they hadn't by that point arrived in great numbers. Um, so clearly things can move over time, but I think that's a figure that's probably um, important to, um, to remember. Other things today we're a lot less clear about, and um, if this referendum on Sunday uh, could be a free and fair referendum, it would, and again, academic speaking, it would be interesting to actually see um, what the preferences of Crimeans are. Clearly, we're not going to see that, and the result can be easily manipulated and will be manipulated. And you suggest already figures for the result, um, but it's not. Uh, it's not. It's probably a matter of how high the support will be and what what kind of figure looks looks vaguely vaguely credible. Um, but if we look at and we hear a lot about that these days about the census figures of two thousand one. Uh, that's 58% from uh, Russian ethnic Russians in Crimea, about 24% ethnic Ukrainians, and 12, about 12% 12 of um, Crimean Tatars. Uh, those divisions, uh, with the exception of the Crimean Tatars, um, don't really tell us all that much about what Crimeans think about where Crimea's place is. Um, first of all, the Slav majority altogether, and also most of the Ukrainians are Russian speakers, um, they have not been politically mobilized in a, in a particular way since the 1990s. Yes, there is a general cultural um, political sentiment, um, but that has not, until very recent events, uh, very radically shifted this, uh, translated into a coherent uh, pro-Russia movement in Crimea. That died very quickly in 1994, when in fact that movement also failed to address other concerns Crimeans had, in particular about the economy. Um, so that, I think, is, is one, one factor to keep in mind. There are by now, um, obviously, generational differences. So the younger generation in Crimea and other parts of Ukraine has grown up with um, the notion of being part of the Ukrainian state. You can be, and we have many examples around the world, you can be part of a state from a, in a specific region that has specific, a specific history, and perhaps needs to be treated differently. Um, in terms of the institutional setup, but that doesn't mean that you go against um, the state. And I also would, would think that um, many Ukrainians, Russians of different age groups, but again, perhaps increasing, in particular the, the younger generation, um, knows how to distinguish between a messy, but more or less democratic transition process in Ukraine that saw some extreme uh, moments, but always managed to correct that. It's been messy, it's not pursued reforms um, quickly and efficiently, um, but at the same time, it has avoided some of the extremes of the transition process that Russia saw. And I think people also make a choice, do we want to be, would make a choice if they had the, the chance to speak out, would they want to join Putin's Russia today as a political system versus um, something that is still obviously partly rebuilt in Ukraine. 
Unfortunately, we won't find out now, and we, I'm not sure whether we will ever find out um, what, the, what the real preferences are. Um, but just to, to remind you that also the, the, the person we currently see as the Konyan uh, Prime Minister, his party was elected with 4% in the last regional elections. Uh, the current uh, Speaker of the Assembly, the Konyan Assembly is actually not called the Parliament officially according to the Constitution. He has been around for, for a while, um, and it's seen after very recently, um, under the big umbrella of the Party of Region, the Unreformatist Party, um, uh, concerns the region, region have could be managed and addressed. Um, so I think, and, and the third point I want to point out, we are beginning to hear a bit more about them. I've been struck by the media coverage, at least in this country, how little attention um, there has been on the Crimean Tatars. Um, we heard in the last week or so a bit more about them. I think from Monday onwards, they will become the absolutely important and decisive actor in the region. 12% um, in a small place is already quite something. They are united by the, by the memory of um, uh, the deportation under Stalin. Yes, exactly. They've also become, there's more than 12% by now, probably closer to 13%, also the younger generation again, higher, higher proportion there, absolutely. And they have acted, and in particular, when put under pressure, as a much more unified force, and they are politically organized, they have their very well organized uh, political structures. So I think the key issue now will be there are um, attempts going on um, to, to buy them off, to offer them economic support and political representation, but by um, definition, the Crimean Tatars, given their history, will be skeptical of the more long-term kind of nature of such promises. Um, and what will be put to, to a test really is how, how united um, a group they still are. They clearly have by now also different social, economic, and political interests among them. And the current more moderate leadership may also not be in control of what certain groups do. There are more radicalized groups to it. Again, that has so far not been the most important strand of um, the Crimean Tatar. Um, movement as such, but that could very quickly change. And probably one point where, where maybe I, I disagree slightly with you, Mr. Kwasniewski, um, I cannot believe that Russia has an interest in seriously destabilizing the situation in Crimea itself. So um, I get a sense that there will be some um, wait and see how the Crimean Tatars react, because it would not only look bad if now this region, um, if, if, if violence kicks off in a protest first and a potential violence or some sort of insurgency in, in Crimea if they, if they don't manage to, to offer them something to, to keep them quiet or even um, kick-starting a new migration route among, among the Crimean Tatars. So I think that's one of the, the factors um, we need to watch and that Putin is probably still watching as well, which leaves together with, um, you just referred to the meeting today, um, with um, Lavrov and Kerry, one thing that um, has come out already from that is a certain timeline that Lavrov, I think, said, um, uh, if, if I read it correctly, that they won't annex, Russia will not annex, uh, or maybe use that word, of course, will not um, incorporate um, Crimea into the, into the Russian Federation um, next week, uh, very quickly, it will be a gradual process, at least a year. So again, that can be read um, as, a, as a window for, certain, for a certain political process. And maybe if I end with this, um, the best um, any Western actor can really hope for is um, that uh, it becomes possible to move it onto a political path, and probably that, and that might be the lesson from the 1990s in Crimea, where the end result is open. So maybe there will be a result where Crimea leaves um, Ukraine, but hopefully on a different on a different footing, and maybe um, there are other examples around where one could um, think of a process that has 
different stages built into it, and their choices at various points, and no, no, no side knows um, exactly what the choice will be, but they commit to this in principle. Um, and ultimately, I think a lot is about, and that explains uh, part of why this could escalate so quickly, that Russia is reacting to um, a regional balance in Ukraine um, uh, having been lost through the Maidan demonstrations. And if we think of the uh, EU brokered agreement, and I agree, it came too late. There's uh, certain delays, I think, several times on the EU, EU's part over the years, but in particular that one. And it was so quickly overtaken because the agreement talked about a national unity government, but that would have included um, representatives of the southern and eastern regions or the party of region or whoever um, would have spoken for, for that. That's clearly not what we've seen. So for um, uh, both Russia as well as uh, political interest in, in the east and south of Ukraine, uh, it looks as if the pendulum has swung far too much to one side. And part of Ukraine is part of uh, probably your frustration, Mr. Solana, but also part of what has held Ukraine together is that there are all these two, two sides, uh, not just two sides, it's, it's actually too simplifying, but, um, but there are different um, regional forces that need to be represented in, in the center in Kiev. So, the other quick thing I think Ukraine needs to do is um, not only move towards presidential elections, but also parliamentary elections, and probably if they still can, regional elections, and forming a government. Because at the moment, also from the EU's point of view, to push ahead now, with, uh, which is I think what has been agreed so far, with the political part of the association agreement, and leave the trade agreement for later, and do that with an interim government, uh, seems not like uh, a recipe that will calm the situation. Putin will destabilize the situation in Eastern Ukraine, and he will stabilize the situation Crimea has had. Because for him, it would be very important to say, look, after the referendum, everything is okay, and even I can imagine that he will give some money for some investment, etc. Some money would be necessary for infrastructure, because all the of, of, of all supplies of water or everything are coming from Ukraine. So that's uh, and, but, the, but the real point is, what uh, Putin will do with this um, decision of, of um, Crimean parliament to be a part of, of Russian Federation. And I expect that he will not decide that he's ready to accept, because it would be really the, the beginning of the Cold War. Because then, you know, the space for some diplomatic and political maneuvers is, is very, very good. That agreement that you had mentioned <coughs> that may develop in time without clear, I mean, in a way that was tried in the, really in the Georgia, <coughs> the meetings that the OECE had were not recognizing everybody but talking. And that is something that can be repeated uh, to prevent, uh, to do something dramatic to. Uh, day after, in which really is no exit uh, possible. And I think that could be a, a, a way. And uh, if we play our cards well, uh, maybe a, a way out. Uh, but again, uh, if what uh, Putin does want is to have a custom union uh, with uh, Ukraine, uh, if that is the, the objective, uh, we're going to be with that objective for some time, and no? see how we can dismantle that. Presumably, if, if uh, Putin has uh, his eye on the long game, as you were suggesting, President, 
Um, the option available to him is not to actually do anything dramatic after a referendum, but to uh, treat uh, Crimea like Transnistria or Kazakhstan or South Ossetia. Um, now, who'd like to ask the first question? Um, yeah, perhaps you can just say who you are. Edward. Thank you. Microphone coming. Uh, Edward Mortimer from All Souls College. Um, I, I would actually like to ask you a question, Chancellor, if I may, but the other members of the panel might like also to comment on it. I, I thought your account of your conversation with the Foreign Minister uh, was very interesting. Um, when you had to tell him that the European vacation did not mean membership of the EU, and he interpreted that as meaning that Ukraine was being discriminated against as compared to Turkey. Well, um, one could say that the Turkish path has not proved to be exactly uh, a bed of roses. Um, and um, so that being made a candidate or having negotiations formally opened you know, doesn't guarantee a happy outcome. But I wonder if you meant to imply that it would have been A, possible, and B, desirable for the EU to treat Ukraine at least on the same level as Turkey. Um, at about the time that I had that meeting with the Ukrainian foreign minister, the um, commissioner for enlargement, um, very capable um, center-left politician called Interbohaigen, made a speech in the Ukraine saying, you know, get real. Um, whatever else uh, we offer you, we're not offering you membership of the European Union. Um, I think that was a terrible mistake. Um, I happen to be of the view that we should have been serious about Turkish um, membership of the European Union and that that might have made an effect on what Turkey is like uh, at the moment. Um, I think that uh, we should be have been more serious about our relationship with Ukraine. I very much agreed with the point uh, that uh, Professor Sasse made extremely diplomatically about the lack of clarity about what exactly it was that we were offering uh, member states, I, I, I mean uh, states around our borders. I'm not one of those who thinks that um, being opaque is always the best diplomacy. So, there are so my answer to your question is yes. My answer to your question is is I would have preferred the answer to both questions to have been yes. Can I, can I, can I make a comment? Yeah. You know very well what is the meaning of an association agreement. The association agreement is what you offer to a country that you are not going to offer membership by definition. And therefore, the confusion was confusion. But if you look what is an association agreement, an association agreement is for somebody which is not the door open to be a member, a for a long time. This is the definition. So, you know, that's. Uh, you can uh, disguise that statement, but it's there, it's written, they signed it. Yes, and, yeah, yes and no, because uh, you remember Poland well, signed the association in 1991 and uh, we started to be a full member of the European in 2004, so after 13 years. But the uh, association agreement for more normal people on the street means that someday they can be a member of, of the EU. And this is such. Natural thinking of the people. It doesn't mean that no, you are not going to be ever. 
But that format is not written with the idea. That's all. Maybe it's a format. This is when you sign that, and you know that you are not going to What this time you will take on the, other, on the other hand, the position with Turkey is that we've offered them membership of the Euro European Union, but um, they suspect that none of us really need. Which is... <laughs> that is an important point because, of course, the, why the reaction of the people in Kiev were so strong? Why the you know the ones who are speaking about five hundred thousand, others are speaking about seven hundred thousand? I heard even about one million people on Maidan. And uh, demonstrating in favor of European Union, European values, and so on. Because for these people, really, the Europe, uh, despite association agreement, the free trade agreement, membership, some, that is really important thing. That, that, that is a value. That is something what, what is a dream of, of Ukrainians. I tell you, many, many years before Maidan, normally with Ukrainians, when Ukrainians they want to order renovation of, of the apartment, they have two types of renovation. A question of, 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 of the people is, что вы заказываете? Ремонт или евро ремонт? Renovation or Euro renovation? Renovation means something bad as usual, very much in Soviet style, quite expensive, expensive. But Euro renovation means that finally you have a flat like in Europe. And that is something what is animating all these people in, in, in Ukraine. And uh, the politically, diplomatically speaking, of course, maybe you're right. In my opinion, that we didn't say during this long time of association uh, agreement negotiations, that finally, after association, which is the first step, after many, many years, after a lot of effort, after huge homework, which is necessary to uh, do, that one day Ukraine can be the full member of the European Union, politically, it was mistake. Let me, let me, I, I do not uh, don't necessarily agree on but I'm describing what I heard from the lips of Madame Chancellor Merkel not long ago being sent to Ukrainians. This doesn't mean full membership. And please notice, this is, this is uh, I mean, I'm, if I don't say that, we were lying. It was formally said to not, don't have the expectation at this point in time of being member. That I heard that. It, it no, is, I may disagree, but this is a fact. Yeah, yeah. And I don't disagree with you, Javier, but it is worth noting that when we first um, were negotiating with Austria, Sweden, um, uh, uh, and Finland. Finland for membership of the European, or for, for their relationship with the European Union, we were offering them, as it were, um, um, uh, limited membership. We were offering them the opportunity of playing on weekdays, but not at weekends. Um, and they threw that out of the plan uh, pretty quickly, um, understandably. And I think, it's, I think it's very difficult to camp on the area. I totally agree with you about the legality and what they signed up to, but the, but the area between is quite um, uh, marshy. Yes, here. Yeah. Thank you, Chancellor. Uh, my name is Rakmi. I'm, I'm, I'm from Georgia, but I'm a student here in, in Oxford. I'm public policy. Um, so my question would be, um, uh, very little has been, has, has been said about the energy policy in, in Europe and, and Russia's role within energy policy. I think this is one of the main reasons why Russia is so keen to, to tackle Ukraine and, and have the um, um, pro-Russian uh, leader in Ukraine always, uh, historically. Um, because Ukraine is the transporter of, of Russian gas to the rest of the Europe. 
do you think, and I think my question uh, primarily goes to Mr. Mr. Sola, do you think one of the main reasons why you always fail uh, with Russia is uh, sandwich policy and, and the vagueness, and the professor has been talking about, the vagueness of the policy of, of EU toward, towards Russia is, about, is, is, is all about energy and gas. Yeah. Of course, it's not the only, but it's very important. Uh, in Germany, get a good part of this gas uh, from the, to the south, from the Ukraine, from the north to Belarus. So a, a bad winter with Ukraine, the, the people of the north of Germany get, get continue to have uh, gas from Belarus and the south. Uh, but uh, again, it's 60% uh, of the whole export of Russia. And it's 30% of the import of the, United, of the European Union, but only from all the countries and all different countries. So it's a bad business to, 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 to cut it from, more from Russia than from the, Euro, from the European Union. Now, the, what is now being talked, and this is very interesting talk, uh, since the, this is not being podcasted, I can say, um, it's a big discussion now about that. <coughs> how we can get, uh, at a very short notice, enough uh, gas to uh, be able to put a sanction on the gas of the Okay, I don't want to use the name And that is on the, uh, this is being calculated and being uh, studied. And, um, there is a possibility of a very rapid sign if things go very bad. It's only 30% of our consumption. For Russia, it's a 60% of the export. Gentleman here, and then a gentleman, yes. I wanted to put a, uh, Robert Service, Russian, Russian Center. I wanted to put a question about um, uh, how clever Putin is, and I was very taken by what uh, President Kuznetsky uh, uh, was saying. But I wonder if, in the longer term, Putin is really quite so clever. Um, if he, if, if, if any of this instability in Kiev spreads to Moscow, he, he could be in big trouble. If he gets his customs union with Ukraine. It will be a non-modernized, non-diversified economy. And what sort of position is Russia ever going to have vis-a-vis -vis, uh, China? And if the instability continues in this part of uh, the world for very much longer, how long is it going to be before the North Caucasus, which was only conquered 150 years ago? I mean, let's think about how long the Irish think about it. <coughs> Uh, uh, my father was Irish. So I'm not aware of that. Uh, uh, these, he's not so clever. I, 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 I completely agree with you. And I, I, I agree that the only possibility of modernization of Russia is from the, from the east. I mean, the Chinese are going to the borders uh, and developing the borders in the, in the, in the, in the east, the far east, in a manner that they cannot handle. They don't have the money to do it. So this is a risky battle for Russia in the medium term. May, 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 may say something? Well, 
Professor, you are absolutely correct. In my opinion, also, much more clever politics would be modernization of uh, Russia, modernization not only uh, of the economy, but modernization of the state, of, of uh, in the, in the creation of, of uh, civil society. I remember my talk with, with Putin many, many years ago. I asked him about the civil society, democracy. His answer was, no, this is impossible because we have no transition. Well, what is true? But I said, look, if you have no tradition, it's necessary to start one day this real tradition. <laughs> no tradition. But he was not ready for that. I'm afraid that Putin is 14 years in power. And his feeling today really is that I can do what I want. And I don't care very much about this future for the next 20, 30 years. I want to finish my legacy with such success that I will say one day to my countrymen, look, we are superpower again. Maybe not in private, but we are superpower. And this is his goal, and he organized for that many uh, events. Sochi was the first event, World Championship in Soccer the next event. Uh, in the middle we have all this... Uh, he didn't expect uh, such situation in Ukraine. He was sure that he is very close uh, uh, to the victory uh, with, with the other part. Uh, of course, his, and that is not only his, that is a nightmare of Lukashenko, that is a nightmare of, of uh, Nazarbayev, is of course Maidan. Because this type of uh, reaction of the people, they don't like totally. You know, they, they, they are very much afraid. Uh, but of course, as far as they will have the idea that uh, all these um, protests are organized by foreign um, uh, forces, uh, they, they will be mistaken again. Because one day it can happen... Um, in Minsk, in Moscow, or in, in, in maybe not in Astana, but in Almaty, and that, that's that, that is, that is um, uh, possible. Uh, 14 years in on the top of such country is a problem. And last point, you know, I was uh, before my presidency, I was chairman of Constitutional Committee of National Assembly. We prepared the Constitution of Poland, <coughs> adopted 97, and in this Constitution we have a rule about two terms of, of um, uh, president. Five years term, but two and no more. The Polish president can be twice elected. And when I finished my second term, I had a farewell visit in Washington, and my good friend George W. asked me, Hey, you know, we are so good guys. What idiot prepared such constitution in Poland? I said to him, Be careful, George, because this idiot is sitting in front of you. I tell you, that is fantastic that after two terms I can travel without problems without sanctions, without frozen uh, accounts. Uh, I, I, I can go to the streets in Warsaw to go to the restaurant. And that is... But I never, I never dreamt about, you know, superpower. And that is maybe this difference that the professor should understand. Yeah. I'm not disappointed you don't have a yacht. <laughs> Thank you, Chairman. Um, my question is about an element of this dreadful crisis which I find rather extraordinary hasn't been covered. Um, and it's the element which I believe puts this really into a, a very unusual problem area. And that is because Putin has deployed his military in a way that in my four decades of military and government service, I've never seen a previous example of deploying your force only on foot, using the most fundamental element of your armed force, no tanks, no artillery, no drones, individual soldiers, but incredibly well disciplined, 
uniformly equipped in brand new, <laughs> uncreased combat uniforms who were working to a very, very carefully controlled plan with excellent level of radios at personal level. I have never seen anything like it. Now, I believe Putin in this area was extraordinarily clever because he worked out that this is something which is impossible to counter in, in, in Crimea anyway. It is impossible for the uh, Ukrainian military in Crimea to counter, and it's impossible for anybody outside to counter. And I believe he worked this out, although maybe it was deployed more or less spontaneously because of his outrage. Um, if we look at Georgia, he, he admitted a couple of years later that actually he planned uh, the assaults a year and a half in advance. And I would like your opinion, first of all, on what I believe was an extraordinarily effective uh, military tactic which has proved an absolute winner with impossible precedence for the future. And secondly, um, how are we going to stop him do this, doing this again? Uh, because it worked. Thank you. There are, as you know, 50,000 Russian waiters in London just waiting. <laughs> <laughs> No, it was well done, unfortunately, and I think that it's uh, difficult. It would be difficult to repeat such um, a scenario in Eastern uh, Ukraine because uh, the situation is uh, different. In Sevastopol, they have own base. In Eastern Ukraine, not. Then, of course, uh, in, in Crimea, it was possible to say because of the structure of the population that uh, they are not the Russian soldiers; they are self-defense uh, units. Well equipped in some shops in in, in, in Simferopol, or I don't know. <laughs> and, and, uh, that's of course impossible to do in in, in the Donetsk or Dnipro, especially because uh, you know this uh, in these places uh, Ukraine has much uh, more own units, and uh, and uh, and today, especially after Crimean experience, they are better prepared for that. Uh, and this self-defense concept was, I think, such political, very how to say. Um, special answer of Putin of this self-defense um, people on, on Maidan. You know, that was uh, uh, a little bit uh, polemic from his side to this uh, spontaneous self-defense. Uh, yes, yes. I completely agree, and I think that's also that's a source of optimism and as well that this is not a scenario that can, can be easily transplanted somewhere else. Gender uh, knocks on the door. We have another question from her. <laughs> From a woman yet? Yes, there's one. Yes, the woman with the left arm. Yeah. I've got a short comment and a short question, if I may. Um, about the composition of the government, it's often criticised that you know um, the pendulum has swung too far. I think it's still worth remembering that in that parliamentary session on the 22nd of February, um, the Green Party head of the party leaders came out. They did refuse actually to participate in the new government. Um, but at the same time, there are two factions that are formed from the remnants of the party regions that are part of the new voting coalition. Um, and, um, and also, Yetin was, of course, appointed with the highest number of votes from the parliament in Ukraine's independent history. So in, in terms of legitimacy for an interim government, actually, it, it's pretty, pretty high, but I agree there should be fresh parliamentary elections. My question is more about events yesterday in, in Vienna. Um, the arrest of um, Dmitry Kuniyev, and I'm really interested to know the panel's opinion on how that fits into what's unfolding here, and how far it's connected or not. 
Well, some of us hope the next um, gesture will be the closing down of Chelsea Football Club. But, um, <laughs> how to answer that? Well, it's difficult to, to answer because uh, we were uh, surprised also by this information. Uh, what uh, I read that means uh, Fitash is uh, arrested not because of this last uh, fatal event, but uh, something from the year 2008, and it is FBI um, uh, issues and, and not. Uh, well, I think the, the oligarchs, generally speaking, today are in very difficult um, situation. Some of them, which were not close to, to the Yanukovych group, uh, like like uh, Mr. Pinchuk. For example, they, 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 are, they can be relaxed because uh, they are doing their own job and, and, and uh, they have, of course, the problems with the Russian market, etc. But this is a different story. But some people close, and Fitash was one of the close uh, supporters of, of Yanukovych, like Akhmetov. Uh, they, of course, can have some problems with new new, new government. But uh, in my opinion, the main fear for oligarchs today is that the next stage of this revolution in, Kiev, in, in Ukraine can be really in, uh, not now against the, the, the politicians, because it's happened, but against rich people. Because in this social situation in, in, in Ukraine, I think there's a huge differences between rich and poor people. That is a source of, of a lot of tensions and, uh, and can be the real problem for next month. According, I think, to the, this morning's Financial Times, so it must be true, the um, uh, oligarch whom you mentioned is represented in this country by the grandson of a former Prime Minister, Lord Oxford, um, and uh, he was also, I think, a former member of um, uh, the Friends, MI6. Timothy Gardner. I want to come back to a crucial point made by President Krasnevsky, which I would reformulate your comment as follows. The crucial struggle that begins the day after the Crimean referendum on Sunday is not the struggle for Crimea. It is a struggle for Eastern Ukraine. 90% of the Western media coverage will be about Crimea, Russia and the West, sanctions, new Cold War, and of course stuff will be happening, as Glenn Sasser reminded us, that the crucial struggle is Eastern Ukraine. Will there actually still be elections? on the 25th of May. Will those elections happen across the country? Will Eastern Ukraine be part of a national political process? For if yes, then not only is the independence of the rest of Ukraine secured, but Ukraine is back on an unambiguously constitutional democratic track, which it isn't at the moment. So my question to all is, what should the politicians and actors on the ground do to make sure that that comes about, that the elections go ahead and Eastern Ukraine is part of them, and what can we do in the West to help them in that? Well, uh, I think to have a 25th of May will be absolutely crucial date. And I hope that, uh, because one of the elements, we don't know nothing about Lavrov's and Kelly talks, but uh, the information is that uh, nothing. Pessimistic. Pessimistic. But what is the problem? Well, um, I mean, uh, Lavrov said during press conference for Russia today that they, uh, they stay uh, with their own position and they do not agree with uh, Americans. So probably no conclusions, positive conclusions. Well, it was impossible to predict such result. So I think 25th is a, 
And I hope that uh, the, the change of the day, the postponement of the election, will not be an element of the D, because it would be a mistake. Uh, in my opinion, Ukraine cannot wait longer for some constitutional um, uh, stability. Because uh, having acting president, having such a very special kind of government, and the old style uh, parliament, that is a little bit too much. I think this president elected 25th, we see who will be elected. That is the next point, because my advice to leading politicians in, in Ukraine would be not to make this campaign very tough and not to fight each other so much as we know from the history. And such scenario, unfortunately, is quite possible and likely. <coughs> uh, and of course, 25th is very important to have this election. Secondly, to have this election well organized with a lot of international observers and in eastern part of, of, of Ukraine. And of course, the main problem is how to eliminate all these possible uh, provocation, uh, uh, acts of, of violence uh, from, from various sides, because I don't speak only about, uh, about uh, Russians. We have enough uh, groups in Ukraine which are interested in, in the violence also. Today, for example, I was informed before this meeting that three persons were killed in Donetsk during some demonstration between pro-Russians and, and uh, pro-Ukrainian groups. So if we have more and more such, such um, um, situations, it would be bad. And then, of course, what today the government, Ukrainian government, can do? I think the most important is to, to, to start very active politics towards eastern part of Ukraine. Because, uh, you know, two or three days ago, there uh, was the information that one of the uh, former uh, governor of Kharkiv, Dobkin, uh, was arrested also. Dobkin wants to be this pro-Russian candidate in the election. My, I don't know Dobkin. He's not the hero of my story. And, and uh, I met him because Timoshenko was in Kharkiv. We met him many, many times. But I think uh, for uh, it's, it's a mistake if, if in, in Eastern Ukraine, this feeling that really the, the country is split and, and, and we have no chances for good dialogue, will increase. And this uh, action of, of, of arrest, that's, that's, that's assumption. In my opinion, it would be good to have one pro-Russian candidate in this election also. It would be much better not only to have you know, candidates from Maidan in such uh, nice, very comfortable situation, who will win would be okay. That is, is wrong. So I think this pro-Eastern, um, uh, Yatsenyuk is, is a very clever man. And I think he understands the situation uh, very well. And he's uh, absolutely able to, to make some gesture to, to, to towards Eastern. And that is necessary one day to go. It's necessary for these guys one day to go physically uh, to Donetsk, to Dnipropetrovsk, and to organize. Uh, the only one who was enough courage to do it was Klitschkov, to Kharkiv with some accidents. Uh, well, what is uh, for the for, uh, European Union important? You know? I can, I can say again about the first idea is not the end of the story, is, is a, to some extent beginning of, of, of this. Because we have new situation for India, and in my opinion, it's necessary to expect this uh, 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 continuation of destabilization of eastern part of, of um, uh, without military forces. Because the Russians doesn't need military forces in this uh, place. They have enough organized groups, they have enough uh, supporters, not in my opinion, not too many, but it's not, they, we shouldn't speak about millions, but about thousands or a dozen thousands we can speak. And this is enough to destabilize the situation. Uh, and of course, uh, we should say uh, openly that uh, the Crimea is, is, is a problem, and Russia can, you know, we have now this very, very 
new new description, de-escalation. So we expect uh, not escalation, but some kind of de-escalation, and it's necessary to use some some instruments. And the main problem for EU is how to describe, how to define what kind of instruments we can use, and for what kind of instruments we can have consensus. Because here we have a uh, problem not now, it's from the very beginning. Can I have a small footnote? If any actors can encourage, I think, Kiev at this point to entertain thoughts about uh, ideas of decentralization and federalization, um, whatever you want to call it, and you don't want to use the word federalism right away, I think that would be a very um, clever strategy at this point, because it could actually ultimately, although a lot of people inside and outside Ukraine would not like that term, perhaps, and associate various things with it, it could ironically, I think, strengthen Ukraine internally and also protect it from further Russian adventures. I would hope, following what you said, President, that there are already plans in place for deploying an EU monitoring mission um, with some, with a fairly distinguished figure and leading it, like uh, uh, the President or Pat Cox or somebody who already knows a lot about Ukraine. Um, Ellen Darendorf, um, it may well be true that uh, Putin has a long-term plan uh, great Russia again, and uh, heir of Peter the Great. But we've only heard about Russia as oh, Putin, his offensive intentions. Is it inconceivable that there's also a defensive element? My question is to Mr. Solana. At the Bucharest NATO meeting in 2008, there was a declaration that Ukraine and Georgia would become members of NATO. Now, the Russians took that seriously. I've read that this wasn't taken seriously by NATO. It was just to make George Bush happy. Um, is, is that true, or was it a serious intention? I think that you are pretty close to the truth. <laughs> I happened to be in that lunch where the decision was taken. I was not then in, I had nothing to do with, uh, with NATO, but as high representative of the European Union, they offered, I mean, they invited me. And it was very clear that nobody wanted to make that statement. In fact, the map, the, the, the continuation of that was not, never true, that it never was implemented, no? Uh, after the, uh, until the, the battle of Georgia. I think that uh, nobody wanted, uh, or the majority didn't want that decision uh, to be taken. Well, but, uh, I think the NATO membership today is not the topic in, in Ukraine. And uh, Ukrainians, even uh, today's government and leaders, they, they are not interested in this. Uh, because they, uh, first of all, the, the, the people there are not uh, very much in favor of NATO. Uh, you, you know the figures better, but. My feeling is that today for European Union we have strong 50% in favor, we have 30% against and 20% looking for, for uh, something. And for NATO I think we have no more than 20% in favor. I think that NATO is, is not the point now. And if Russia tries to explain all this action because they are afraid that Ukraine can be the next month a member of NATO, that is not very, very serious. Uh, from Bucharest, I remember also quite well the statement of the, the sentence of Mr. Putin, and that's a very dangerous sentence, because in Bucharest he said that for him, the Ukraine is an artificial state. 
and uh, and that's I think uh, means something. That means that uh, uh, it's difficult to accept independent sovereign um, uh, Ukraine if you see or you treat this country as, as artificial. Last question. My name is Peter Magyar. I'm a lawyer who, for many years, has worked in Central Europe and in Ukraine. Um, one important um, element, I think, in creating an independent uh, Ukraine is the involvement of the oligarchs. You mentioned um, how wealthy they are. There's about 10 or 12 people who basically control whole of the economy in Ukraine. Nearly all of those people are actively involved in, in politics. Nearly all of them finance political parties. There really isn't any political force that is independent of these 10 12 individuals. Some of those individuals uh, are naturally aligned with Russia, perhaps not for um, out of conviction, but for economic reasons. The others um, maybe lean towards uh, what we broadly can call uh, the West. But one thing's for sure is that they've been fighting each other since the day Ukraine was established. And they're fighting each other right now. And after each election in Ukraine, a new corrupt um, uh, kleptocracy um, uh, steps into power. And one of the things they do, apart from enrich themselves, is actually punish um, the opponents. So you have a very atomized um, uh, society and ongoing conflict. But the problem here is that you've got very rich powerful men in conflict. And I think part of what the international institutions need to do now is to recognize that there will be no person to negotiate any treaty with or have any meaningful um, uh, post-election uh, state or rule of law or political institutions unless these people voluntarily disengage from politics and enter into some sort of concord amongst each other whereby they, they recognize that they've done well, they're vastly wealthy, but they can't continue in the way they have. Because it's effectively like uh, uh, dealing with um, barons in the Middle Ages. Sure. But they have to voluntarily step back. There's no way of forcing these people to do it. And the benefits um, will come down the line. Ukraine's got every chance of having a strong economy. And that economy will afford uh, those rich men many further riches going forward. Okay. Um, but without that, I don't think it's got a chance. Okay. Well, this, that's, this is a great um, topic that probably will invite us again to discuss uh, this, this uh, problem because uh, I agree with you. 
the structure of um, uh, Ukraine, this combination of, of money and politics, oligarchs and, and uh, power, is very dangerous. Uh, this is a problem of all, uh, all post-Soviet um, uh, states. It's the same system we have. Of course, there are a lot of differences, but, but the, 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 main structure, the same structure is in, in Russia. Uh, I, I, I hope that we are close to this situation, what, what um, you described, that, uh, uh, that they are ready voluntarily to limit own power and own uh, influence. Because they are very shocked. They are very shocked. Everything that happened is, uh, was a shock. And before, uh, what I remember, because I met all of them uh, when we discussed association rules, the majority of them, huge majority of them, were very much in favor of association and, and European Union and all the things. And I asked them, Ahmed, for example, why you are so much for, for all these things? Because he understood finally, after 20 years of, let's say, wild capitalism, that he needs rules of law. He needs uh, security for own money, for own property, for own life. For, um, he needs to, 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 to be among normal business people in the business community of the world. Because he's enough rich. He, and then now he needs uh, to be a little bit more noble as he was in the last uh, 20 years. Uh, of course, he's much more patriotic as other oligarchs because he decided in that method to buy Shakhtar Donetsk and not Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> and Chelsea was So I think now they are close to understand two things. They need rules of law. They need um, uh, the change of this situation inside. They, um, uh, they are ready, in my opinion, more and more uh, to limit own position, but still they have a lot of temptations. The first thing, uh, frankly speaking, I don't understand. Uh, maybe that is uh, with some uh, deeper background, if it makes sense, but to propose for two oligarchs, Taruta, to be new governor of Donetsk, and to Kowomoyski, to be new governor of Dieppe-Kutrov, that is something what is absolutely against everything what you said. Because um, uh, it means, again, that we have this combination of, of money, of oligarchs, of politics, so If Poroshenko will be elected as a new president, if he has a good chance to be elected, we have a real oligarch, very nice, very sweet oligarch. Because we, <laughs> uh, but but, but that's still the problem. I think without uh, self-control, um, uh, self-discipline from both sides, politicians and, and, and oligarchs, and with a good new constitution, which is absolutely important for 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 Ukraine, and with such understanding that after second Maidan, the third Maidan will be disaster for everyone, because first time is okay, second time is, is dangerous, but third time is disaster. You cannot repeat the same mistake during 20 years because then, of course, this is this is end of the of the, of, of, of the story. So hopefully we have a chance for that, but that is very very difficult, um, and and uh, I think with a lot of Ups and downs with a lot of of of, of um, uh, new in this in this uh, problem. It's quite seven o'clock. If you ask a really telegrammatic question, you've been asking to. Very short. Very Russian question. I'm actually uh, um, originally from Moscow, Russian. Uh, and for, you know, what I want to say first is that... Oh, no, no, no. no. Question. question. Okay. <laughs> it's, not, it's not only Putin, by the way, yeah? Not only Putin. And you'll be surprised that in Navalny and a lot of people who are in a position in Russia, 
they're not commenting on that or they're very neutral. So it's important to understand, for some reason, there is a concession within Russian elites mm -hmm. that what Putin is doing is partially right. Why it's separate discussion? Now the question, more, I am from the city, so I studied here, did the field. I saw a lot of research recently, Merrill Lynch, UBS, and Goldman Sachs, American banks, which are saying buy Russian now. Essentially, next week, the week after, buy Russian shares because everything chips. It's like next Abkhazia. So Crimea will be taken. It's next Abkhazia, relax. There will be some sanctions, some oligarchs lose their property in Chelsea, but nothing else. Yeah, relax. So do you agree with it? Are we think that you know this Abkhazia scenario and targeted sanctions are not actually uh, what we are talking about, that there will be acceleration of the stage and it all end up in new sort of economic standoff with very serious implications for both sides. What's your personal impression? We don't know much about uh, how to handle this uh, question from the financial market, but uh, yeah. I wouldn't bet. I said, I think this is the beginning. This is not, not the end of the Okay. Um, can I... Um, I think that was even better than I'd hoped it was going to be. Um, I think the panel were absolutely terrific. Um, that was a wow factor um, Oxford event. And I'd like you all to uh, express your gratitude in the customary way, not with a crouching, but with a standing of action. <laughs>